Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Pascal Pastos, who is a computational scientist at the University of Chicago and an instructor of mathematics and computer science at Chicago State University. After 12 years in academic research at UC California, San Diego on computational cosmology, he moved to Chicago where he worked in high-performance computing at Northwestern University. Later, he joined the Maniac Lab at the University of Chicago, where he is involved in accelerating computational research using advanced cyber infrastructure for several international high-energy physics experiments and serves as the Open Science Grid Area Coordinator for mid-scale collaborations. Welcome, Pascal. Hi, Gil. Nice to be here. I want to start with um, you know, a couple of the papers that you're involved in. The first one, distributed computing software and data access patterns in OSG, mid-scale collaborations. OSG is Open Science Grid. Uh, what yes. exactly is Open Science Grid? Um, Open Science Grid is, is a, a federation of uh, university and academic institutions around the country that are coordinating in allowing um, other institutions, including their own, in accessing computer time on their local computer infrastructure. Mm. So uh, every institution that has a deployment of some kind of a computing uh, system, uh, and we're talking about clusters or uh, high-performance computing, uh, supercomputers and stuff like that, uh, they are making that uh, infrastructure available to everybody who has access to this open science grid. Uh, And you don't have to be a member of the participating institutions, but every academic researcher out there in the United States can gain access to the open science grid through, uh, um, uh, there are some, what we call submission hosts, machines that are uh, dedicated to providing access to researchers. The only condition is that they have to have a project, a computationally based project uh, for their academic uh, 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 research, okay. and it is a an extension or something equivalent to another uh, distributed computing uh, infrastructure called Exceed, mm-hmm. 
which is um, uh, instead of being across all academic institution, typically tries to create a, uh, an infrastructure of very high powered data centers and computer centers around the, uh, the country. Yeah. There, getting access is a little bit more complicated because you have to um, make the case that your, the existing, the, the infrastructure that is provided, you can make some use of it. Like you have codes that can scale up to thousands of cores of uh, computational uh, on computational systems, mm -hmm. and you can get some cutting edge science done on it. Mm -hmm. So this is almost like sharing idle, idle compute capacity. Mm -hmm. That is correct. So, uh, so I remember. Um, I don't know if this still exists. Long time ago, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence um, mm -hmm. used to have some sort of a, a program where you could actually put your home computer uh, available for <laughs> for analysis. Right. I, I actually uh, ran this on my computer back in the. Uh, 90s, yeah. late 90s for that. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, so it, is it is similar from the point of view that the individual institutions allow um, code to run on their systems, uh, but the origin, who is doing that, is uh, multidisciplinary uh, uh, across uh, multiple institutions. And so there's not a single program that runs there, right? So, But the yeah. process is uh, similar from the point of view that I have an infrastructure, mm -hmm computing infrastructure i have i making you know i have computer cycles available to uh, to spend and uh, it makes sense from the uh, it leadership uh, perspective that you don't want your machinery to be sitting idle yeah. i mean these are multi-million investments so you are uh, enticed to contribute this to the broader academic community not just because you're advancing science but there is also mandates or strong encouragement by the uh, federal government through the their uh, National Sci uh, uh, Science Foundation, where they are uh, encouraging uh, when your uh, universities, when they deploy, for example, a cluster, to make a portion of that time available to the broader academic community. Okay, so all U.S. universities are part of this, or just a subset? No, uh, all uni all not all U.S. universities have that, but every U.S. university that has a cluster has the or some kind of a computing infrastructure has the uh, the opportunity yes. to join the open science grid okay and uh, not only to facilitate their own researchers to get access to that but also you know you're becoming a, a digital uh, a citizen that contributes to the broader uh, effort for uh, you know pushing the limits of science right there. right and and what what do you mean by a mid scale collaboration Right. Um, the uh, scientific collaborations out there have different scale in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how many institutions are uh, partners in that collaboration. Yeah. Um, and uh, what is the scale in terms of computing needs that they have for their computational workflows to run on? Uh, and so to give you an example, um, the uh, Atlas collaboration or the CMS collaborations, which are experiments running in CERN, mm -hmm. uh, you know, looking in, in high energy physics, are, you know, are considered to be, you know, the, the extreme end of a large collaboration okay. because it involves like, you know, hundreds of institutions and uh, hundreds or thousands of researchers working on that. Uh, a collaboration, for example, like Xenon, mm -hmm. um, 
is an experiment that is running out of a national laboratory in Italy. It is an international collaboration. It has partnerships with academic institutions, including University of Chicago. Yeah. But the scale of how many people are involved there, it's much smaller. But it's not small enough from the point of view that you have a, an isolated collaboration of a couple of universities. There is not really a clear-cut number of how you can uh, separate like a mid-scale, small-scale, and large-scale collaboration. Yeah. But um, the area of responsibility in my case is that those, those collaborations that are not the extremely large ones like Atlas or CMS, yeah. but they're not the very small ones, which are partnerships between one to two institutions. Okay, so it, it's both the number of institutions involved number of people involved as well as uh, probably the, the amount of data involved. Amount of data and amount of computing time that they will need to spend on a, on a yearly basis. And the amount of computing time. Okay. Okay. And mm -hmm. um, th so this is, this is sort of an exclusive uh, type of a network um, that, you know, is kind of dedicated to just this or is it piggybacking on something that already exists? You mean like a network, like a, a network used for transferring yeah. data? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, it, it's picking bagging on, on existing infrastructure. Yeah. However, um, uh, the Open Science Grid has a, a partnership with Internet2. Internet mm. And Internet2 is um, um, it's a network company, but it's not it's not for profit. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually, it's, a, a, it's, it's address is internet2.edu. So it's an academic, their customers, the clients, is basically the academic institutions. And what Internet2 does is provides access to institutions to um, a high-speed um, internet pathways across the country mm -hmm. and uh, is responsible for managing those pathways and the uh, endpoints. And there is this partnership between Internet2 and Open Science Grid to facilitate and augment uh, existing transfer capabilities and network capabilities that these universities will have to rely on to move the data around. Because the number one, uh, I would say, I wouldn't call it problem, but challenge in, um, in working in this federated uh, cyber infrastructure yeah. is how do you move large volumes of data from one institution to another uh, to be able to process them on another cluster and then get the results back. Right, right. And so, so Internet 2 is part of the infrastructure. Do you actually move data on the regular Internet? Yes, there will be there will be a portions of the data. It depends on the size of the data, right? Yeah. There will be uh, um, small size files that uh, do not need to use any high speed connectivity. I mean, the pathways between uh, across the countries will always run on what we call a hundred gigabit lanes or even more. Right. But uh, smaller files, they don't need to access uh, you know those very fast lanes, and they can move over a slower network. It's it, we don't really have we don't actually even though we have monitoring in place to capture all this information, we don't immediately have a feel of how one institution talks to another institution. Right. Um, and so the typical way that this is happening is that in the Open Science Grid Federations, you will have what we call uh, submission hosts, uh, locations across the country where universities, researchers from different universities can log in mm -hmm. and use that as a gateway to the broader cyber infrastructure. And so what it really matters is that that submission host moving data, uh, is it on a high-speed network? Uh, how does the data flow from there to the rest of the infrastructure? Okay, okay. You have um, another paper with your uh, colleagues. It's uh, entitled Creating a Content Delivery Network 
for general science on the internet backbone using X caches. So mm -hmm. you say that there's a general problem faced by computing on the grid for opportunistic users. Is that delivering cycles is simpler, computing cycles is simpler than delivering data to those computing cycles. So this is sort of a new technology the the yeah. cache the caching technology conceptually speaking is not old at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, you your internet uh, your uh, internet browser on your machine is caching all the time. Yeah. And to make to make delivery of data to your local machine as fast as possible, because if you keep on using the same, for example, website, uh, you know, loading a bunch of stuff there. You do not want every time you load this page to go and bring the same images or the same content again and again and again. So if you can cache a lot of this information that is frequently used uh, on your machine, then loading up on uh, the information on your browser becomes much faster. So the idea of caching for uh, uh, cyber infrastructures like that is that a lot of the times collaborations that basically generate experimental data, mm -hmm. they are um, multiple users will need to access the same kind of data. They're going to do different science with the data, but the data stays the same, Yeah. right? And so the whole idea is instead of every time a, a user or a researcher just needs to you know, grab a portion of the data and you know, send them someplace else to analyze them, uh, we can cache all this information in a piece of infrastructure called the caching layer, mm -hmm. and then which is distributed around the country. So if a, if a job runs on an institution, Instead of going all the way to uh, where the data originally was created and stored, it can go to the nearest uh, caching location and basically bring the data from there. So that basically uh, makes the data much more readily available on the uh, institution where the jobs is running, the computational workflow is running. And so you don't spend much of your time moving data around. You basically spend most of your time actually doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is actually computing. Right. And it's not, uh, it's not human directed, right? So, uh, so, so will the machine know where the nearest and most optimum cache might be for a specific data? Yes. Uh, in, there, is a, uh, there is always a human intervention in terms of like diagnosing problems like that. But of course, uh, this whole thing is automated from the point of view that is algorithms that is written in the, uh, uh, in the infrastructure setup that will recognize where your job is running and also uh, find out the nearest caching location from where the, uh, uh, that is in proximity to the institution where you're running. And of course, you know, there will be cases where the data that you request may not be in that caching location right early available. In that case, uh, data can be actually found from another caching location or going all the way back to what we call the origin, the place where the data originally are stored by the collaboration. Mm -hmm. But bear in mind, once you actually do the calculation once and you bring the data into that nearest caching layer, uh, caching location, then uh, uh, next job that you're running, you don't have to go all the way back up to, and get them. You can get the data from since you have populated the cache with the with the data that you needed for the calculations. Yeah, and, and, and the beauty here is uh, from an efficiency perspective, every time you run an experiment, let's say combining mm -hmm. multiple data sets, uh, you are creating uh, possibly a new uh, data set that could be cached, that could be, be uh, I'm just speculating, uh, Pascal here, mm -hmm. that could be built That's on, okay. built on by somebody else at a future time. That's right. I mean, um, the uh, experimental data go through multiple stages of analysis and processing. Yeah. Um, uh, raw data need to be processed, uh, uh, noise need to be removed, they have to be cleaned up. So, uh, and this data, before they even become like production quality data, they have to go through multiple, so through a couple of layers of, you know, of what we call a reduction process. 
And uh, if if we if we can have a pipeline where this thing is automated, where this whole thing it gets cleaned up and then becomes available to the researchers, they, we do not need to keep the old data around, and uh, you know, and, and that create, greatly increases the efficiency because if I were to do a computational workflow, but I don't need the actual raw data from the beginning, I need like data generated two or three you know levels down in terms of uh, uh, processing. I can go and grab the process data rather than the original one, and that, of course, expedites the whole, uh, you know, the the path towards the final result. Okay, and and even the computational cycles where the computational cycles are available are also mm -hmm. algorithmically driven. So if you if you submit a job, it mm -hmm. can then find where the where the cycles are. It can find where the optimum path yes, might be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The, although the users do have some control designating where they would like their jobs to run, yeah. uh, this is handled by some centralized services within Open Science called, called the, the factory operations. Yeah. And the factory, what it does, it basically accumulates jobs from users submitted and it determines where the available cycles are and sends the jobs there. Okay. okay. So, in fact, when, when, when jobs are running by users in, a, in a endpoints within the Open Science Grid, they're anonymous. There's not really any user information. Uh, it, it's packaged by the factory sent there, and then the user just basically gets the result back to the from the to the, back to the location where they submitted the jobs from. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, when a new data set is available, uh, multiple people may want to work mm -hmm. with that data. Maybe run different experiments, look for replication. Uh, this type of infrastructure allows all of that to be done pretty quickly. Uh, it, it, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily pretty quickly, but definitely more efficiently. More efficiently. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I want to get into a few of the you know projects you've been involved in. Uh, one is in the South Pole Telescope, uh, mm -hmm. and that is the, the cosmic microwave background CMB, uh, analyzing the CFB data, looking for temperature and polarization. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, yes, the South Pole uh, uh, Telescope is gone through uh, several iterations. It's, a, it's an instrument down in the South Pole, as uh, you know, the name indicates, actually dead center in the South Pole. And there is always uh, staff there uh, you know, taking measurements of the um, uh, cosmic microwave background. And uh, the, the first survey, as far as I remember, was uh, done back in the uh, you know, 2011, and since then, they have been uh, continuously upgraded. Uh, um, you know, they're upgrading the cameras there, and therefore, you know, the efficiency and the sensitivity of their of the instrumentation. Yeah. Uh, and as you improve sensitivity, the challenge there is that you're collecting more data, mm -hmm. and so uh, the my involvement is on the on the infrastructure that processes that data, yeah. and as, because the data being collected in the instrument, they have to find it. They have to find their way back to. Uh, uh, the academic institutions uh, in the United States and other international partners. And there is not really a, a direct cable that will actually just, you know, move the data from the South Pole all the way there. Right. So usually the process is involves satellites downloading the data in some locations in the United States. And from there, there is like, you know, uh, pipelines that will uh, migrate the data to endpoints where they will be further analyzed uh, and so on. But uh, it's the CMB, uh, the the South Pole Telescope is one of the you know one of the greatest success stories. But mind you that it's not the only one. Down in the South Pole right now, there are several experiments mm -hmm. that are you know pushing the frontiers of what they call multi-messenger astrophysics. Yeah. 
uh, and uh, multi-messenger astrophysics is that if you have a, a, a problem in astrophysics, that you have multiple uh, uh, information conveying the picture about what this phenomenon or what this object that you're studying, uh, uh, you know, it can actually relay information back to you through multiple kinds of, of science. Mm -hmm. So it's not just optical astronomy, it may be infrared, it may be gravitational waves that, uh, with, with LIGO. So the multi-messenger astrophysics uh, efforts out there are really trying to collect as much information from different uh, channels to uh, be able to determine you know, the big questions in cosmology, yeah. right? You know, what is the inflationary period? What is the, uh, the spectrum of the CMB, uh, you know, background radiation? How, what does this, how does this affect the distribution of galaxies and, the, and everything that comes after the, uh, the, uh, era of, the era of last ionization back to the present day? All these big questions in cosmology uh, can be uh, addressed or can be tackled by having as much information from different instruments all looking at different parts of the physical processes that are involved here. Yeah, and, and th this data is obviously continuously generated, right? So can, that is correct. Yes. Yeah. So could you give me an idea of, you know, what is the what is the rate of data we are talking about from these instruments? Uh, for um, I, I can give you an idea that every time we are actually looking at the uh, data on a daily basis, we're getting a few hundred gigabytes okay, on okay, every day. Okay. Okay. Uh, and uh, and just mind you that um, down in the South Pole, we are actually uh, having uh, a local little cluster. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it little, but definitely a, 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 a piece of infrastructure that already processes the data. Uh, you know somewhat right. before we even get sent out. And in fact, there are people from the collaboration from the South Pole Telescope, including my own group, mm -hmm. that will be traveling there, typically in the uh, Antarctic uh, uh, winter, which, sorry, winter, uh, Antarctic summer, which is our winter, yeah. that will go there and, and, you know, either do science or even provide maintenance and upgrades to the infrastructure down in the South Pole. Right, right. Okay. And uh, is, is there, uh, so what exactly is the goal of the SPT? What, what, what exactly are they, uh, at least currently, what is their primary goal? Well, the, um, well, the, the, the study is to actually look at the CMB power spectrum yeah. and, and, and look at the different uh, angular scales of how a structure is being separated because that spectrum, what that CMB spectrum the, is, the, is, the, is, is the, the quintessential parameter that will determine how are the uh, uh, the galaxies and the later star formation and everything else that follows that are to the present day will actually evolve. So a lot of effort and energy, energy has been spent in really figuring out the during the, for the study of the CMB what is the exact shape of the power spectrum, what is the what they call the angular scales, smaller than a few uh, you know arc minutes and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the the more detail you have on that uh, in, uh, on that power spectrum in terms of the from the smaller scales to the larger scales, the more confident you are that you built in cosmological evolution models yeah. uh, that will uh, correctly predict uh, the observable parameters at the later universe. Okay, so so it's it's uh, looking at inflation uh, hypothesis. It's looking at the Big Bang itself. So it's really questions around the, the origin of the universe, right? It is, yes, okay. indeed. Okay. I want to jump into um, another uh, project that you're involved in, uh, ENZO, 
an adaptive mm-hmm. mesh refinement code for astrophysics. Um, so this is this is uh, adaptive code uh, for fluid flows. So this is uh, computational fluid dynamics uh, meshes. Talking about yes. Um... We just uh, discussed the uh, the importance of uh, you know figuring out the uh, the cosmic microwave background uh, spectrum. Yeah. Uh, all of this information from the experiment are basically generating and and determining few key parameters that when you feed them in cosmological models, you can actually design computer simulations that will evolve. Uh, you know different scales of the universe from the early universe all the way down to the present universe. Enzo is one of these codes that basically uses, uh, basically evolves this the universe, at least the box of the universe, from the earliest time all the way back to the uh, uh, what we call the time of the last uh, uh, scatter down to the present time, and that does this combination of cosmological physics and also fluid dynamics because uh, as as matter in the universe uh, is basically effectively can be approximated as a fluid, right? It's a gas uh, and uh, that uh, when it collapses forms stars. But it's not just gas though. There is also components that we don't have a fairly good understanding of how, what is the physics behind this. For example, dark matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of these components of dark matter, uh, fluid that is governing the gas, uh, radiation that is emanating from from the stars, uh, shock physics that emanate from like you know uh, colliding uh, sheets of of gas together and creating all these different uh, phenomena like turbulence, for example. All of these things can be coded uh, with a set of you know a number of equations, and you can uh, uh, solve them with various approximations. And when you do this in a three-dimensional space and four-dimensional in terms of like integrating forward in time, what emanates from that is a the picture of the evolving universe uh, from the earliest time all the way to the to the to the present time that will give you rise to the galaxy formation, the star formation, and if you really want to go down to the you know nitty gritty of the present time, you can all, even though create like the host sites of future planetary you know formation systems. Yeah. So Enzo is one of these codes that has the uh, the ability to go from this very early times to the uh, later times, and depending on the resolution. Uh, you can actually get some very interesting physics, uh, 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 you know, studied with it. It's not the only code. It has there are there are multiple. Back in my my day, there were like maybe three or four different codes. But nowadays, there is a plethora of different uh, you know code variants that use different methods, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, 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 smooth particle hydrodynamics and other variations. But the, overall, the objective is: can I can I study with numerical uh, high precision, a problem of the universe and get insight of what's going on. Right. I have the equations, but the equations, um, if I want to basically get an answer, I got to numerically solve them. And when when I get the numerical answer back, do I understand what the value is and how does this compare with uh, observations? Right. So it's always the game of like, I can get an answer from any kind of uh, uh, numerical simulation, but does the result compare uh, with what uh, you know, the uh, observational astronomers will tell me about something, something specific, and and through the disagreement, disagreement is good <laughs> in, in a sense that it allows you to go back to your model and refine the parameters in such way that basically match the data. And of course, it opens up another question: Why did you have to make the refinement, the, the adjustment? How is this justified within our understanding how the physical laws should actually 
uh, you know, be solved and, you know, and how they govern the, the state of the universe and its expansion. Right. Yeah. It brings some memories, uh, Pascal. I was involved in uh, some modeling work in the, in the late 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. with some CFD, CFD work, um, and this was mm-hmm. aircraft design. So uh, remember writing some code, um, you know, the, the, the meshing, that CFD mesh, how you do that is, uh, you know, is, is very critical, right? <laughs> to, to right, how right. You, exactly. Uh, you mentioned yeah. before about this adaptive mesh environment. Yeah. Uh, remember, we're talking about uh, uh, a box that captures uh, structure at immense different dynamical scale. Yeah. You can have voids empty from complete uh, from, from matter to sheets that are basically com- uh, you know, compressed uh, gas uh, in, in some kind of a sheet kind of a structure to globules of matter as they try to condense all the way down to the scale of, of a star. Mm-hmm. The dynamical scale in terms of uh, the sizes going from the large scales down to the, to the small scales is extremely, you know, daunting. Yeah. And the only way you cannot really then spend a lot of computing time, uh, you know, trying to put the res- uh, resolution elements in a, in a part of the simulation box that basically has nothing there, right? right? So a lot of the effort should be, can I actually resolve? Can I actually do my science where it matters? And that's where adaptive refinement comes into place, where you put, uh, uh, you basically resolve with the grids the areas of interest where to, what you're studying and grids and uh, adaptive refinement is one method. The other method is uh, based on what they call smooth particle hydrodynamics. <laughs> is is if I have an area of the volume where I want to focus, for example, the formation of a galaxy, I will have far more particles resolving that portion of the of my simulation box than, and I will have no particles whatsoever in voids because nothing is happening there in the first place. Right. right. So this adaptivity comes from the dy- from the very large dynamical scale of the problem. Mm. Yeah, so so you also have another paper that is uh, looking at a specific uh, experiment. So the, you say that the Lyman Alpha Forest at redshifts 0.1 to 1.6, good agreement between the large hydrodynamic simulation and the HST, Hubble Space Telescope spectra. So this is this is uh, something very specific um, that, that shows. That's right. Yeah. That's, you know, you have, you do the simulations and then, uh, you know, that, if I remember that paper correctly, because it's been a while, it's, uh, you, you, ha- you create a simulated distribution of the universe and then you are assuming now you have a star or some, or not a star, a galaxy in this case, yeah. that shines light. As this light is going through the intergalactic uh, 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 medium, it gets absorbed by the filamentary structure of the, of, of, uh, of, uh, within that, uh, uh, intergalactic medium and from the observer's point of view you see all these dips in uh, you have this spectrum this uh, uh, you know ti- uh, time series of uh, dips in the light as they're coming through the interstellar medium and gets absorbed by different mm-hmm. you know structures and so you can simulate this you can pretend you have a, a point of light and you shine a straight line through the box and you can create what we call synthetic spectra, yeah. and then you take this spectrum, and then you compare it to what the observers see. Right, right. And if you have a good agreement, you know there is a definitely a leap of faith here. <laughs> yeah. uh, that that you, when you claim you have good agreement, therefore you validate the model. Yeah. All right. Uh, it is a, a small step forward into making sure that at least we have some command that the input parameter that went into setting it up was not that far away. Now. 
people can disagree whether it's like you know the Hubble constant is like you know 72.5 versus 70.6 because it is a you know it's a it's a system with way too many free parameters and so you know varying one parameter to make an agreement may be just achieved by another parameter varying it somewhere else right, right. so and that's what from the time to time, from every few years, a, what we call a new concordance model is built, mm. where it says this is the set of parameters that, to best of our knowledge and best of our uh, calculations, uh, fits largely uh, the picture of the universe as we can measure it with our instrumentation. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the advantage of uh, simulation, uh, obviously, is it gives you flexibility to fine tune the parameters. Uh, Correct. But the downside, though, might be that. Uh, you know, you're also tempted to fine tune it uh, so that you can actually match what you observe. Uh, but it mm -hmm. may not be necessarily true, right? Well, yes. Uh, and also remember that a lot of the times, uh, you know, if you look at how observational astronomy or cosmology in this particular case, yeah. you can observe the same, I would say, object. And then a couple of years later, another instrument will go up in space and look at exactly the same object and then it's not that it's going to validate your observations previously or invalidate them, uh, but it's going to change something, yeah. right? With, and it, it depending on how sensitive your set of equations are, that little something in, in the properties of that object that you're measuring may be, good, may be good enough to basically give you a whole different understanding and, and appreciation of what this object is all about. Right. You know, a small parameter change by even a fraction of a percent may change our understanding of how, what is our perspective of this uh, particular uh, phenomenon or object uh, that the scientific community is studying. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have another paper, Pascal, it's on a completely different topic, uh, tiered financial fraud detection, utilizing ah. precision stratified random forest assembly. You want to talk a bit about that? Uh, yeah, this is uh, something that we, uh, uh, I am involved with uh, as my capacity as uh, uh, you know with my sh uh, Chicago State colleagues, yeah. and this was uh, this was done in terms of like trying to get uh, established computational tools mm -hmm. and find a, a, a real life uh, example upon which we can we can apply them. So, for example, a random forest is nothing more than just a uh, a bifurcation map of different decision nodes where you can make a decision yes or no. Yeah. And you can take these computational tools uh, that is taught to undergraduates or graduate students in computer science and trying to find implementation, you know, uh, landscapes out there. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, the the major landscape out there is decision making theory. Right. All right. And in decision making theory, you are trying to make a decision of what is the best uh, course forward, giving multiple choices. Mm -hmm. And I think that paper is trying to get a real-life example, uh, uh, but based on a computational model that is completely you know, agnostic of what this real example is. So my involvement in this paper was on the technical part of you know, decision-making forests rather than the specific uh, implementation on the, uh, on, the, on the case that you mentioned. Okay, okay. Um, so in conclusion, Pascal, you know, if, uh, I know that you're involved in a lot of different projects. What is the, mm -hmm. what's the most exciting thing as you look forward five years? What, what do you think is the most exciting area that, that you're involved in? Um, I would say uh, uh, my work within the context of open science grid and in general, integrated science infrastructure is, uh, 
is the most exciting one. It's not that it's technically very challenging. Of course, there are yeah. technical challenges to be overcome, and there's definitely a lot of um, uh, sweat and tears that have to be uh, shed for making a particular technical implementation stick. Yeah. But it is the bringing community together uh, to take small steps forward that at some point, the small steps, when you integrate them, become giant leaps. Right. And so my involvement in this project as the coordinator for MidScale or even being involved in other projects as well within the open science community, looking at this multidisciplinary uh, you know, effort in utilizing our understanding of how computing tools work and how they can be best adapted, it, it, you see the impact not only on, on communities that I have been traditionally been affiliated with, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say, you know, physics and, and, and astronomy. You see the impact across an entire gamut of, of science out there. Yeah. And specifically, let me give you an example, right, of the times. COVID-19 research, yeah. right? Yeah. The moment that the, the, uh, the, we came to the realization that a lot of computing power has to be spent in coming up with, uh, because when you're building a vaccine or you be, you're trying to understand a disease, it's not just simply being in a laboratory mixing chemicals together, right? right. You, or you, it, there is a lot of, there is a very significant component uh, um, in molecular biology, computational biology that requires computing power. Yeah. And so when, uh, when this effort come into place where it says, well, okay, we have all these institutions out there that they're trying to understand the problem, let's say the COVID-19, mm -hmm. Open Science Grid basically said, okay, we're going to open up the doors. Yep. We're going to give you as many computer cycles as you need. Fill up you know, every institution's uh, uh, you know, uh, queue as much as possible. And then you have this community of, um, that typically was kind of like uh, uh, science and engineering flooding the gates trying to get an answer to uh, you know, a real-life problem. <laughs> uh, a lot of the times, especially in advanced science, uh, people can feel like we kind of isolated from real life problems, but we're not. I mean, we are in all of the things that are happening on the computational side do have real life application. For example, you know, you, you mentioned CFD right now. Yeah. Right? The, the safety, the design of a frame on airplanes really de depends on how, what was your quality yeah. of your computer simulations that you designed that wing, right? And where are you going to do this? Right. And so nowadays, the computational landscape out there is extremely diverse. You have the cloud computing, which is a very important component because it really caters down to the, um, you know, enables small businesses and up startups not to have to spend a lot of money in infrastructure and basically really get their hands dirty, you know, accessing computing power. Yeah. And you have the big, um, extremely large machines, let's say, you know, the uh, the, the one of the fastest computers out there is uh, Summit in in in, uh, in, in Tennessee, mm -hmm. and these are you know lots of GPUs, lots of computing power, and these are for the large you know like the kind of things I was talking about earlier with uh, with Enzo, the big problems, right? Yeah. The big problems in science, but the big problems of science may advance our uh, uh, steps forward a little bit, but there is a lot of lateral science that has to also be happening at the same time, and that's where Open Science Grid comes in there. The, the the extent of all the sciences that it covers, it really uh, makes you feel as part of a larger community. So to, that's to me is the uh, one of the appeals. Working there. Yeah, I mean it's it's really exciting. You know, it it, um, it has both advantage of uh, computing cycles. Any any unused computing cycle uh, is a waste. 
and the marginal cost mm-hmm. of using that is zero. So it has to be using that in some fashion is the is the best outcome. And it's free, and, and it's, <laughs> right? And, and it's free. So optimizing, you know, the, the availability of those cycles. And then I think the way that it is set up, it, it, uh, it appears to me, at least, Pascal, that it, uh, it um, kind of encourages collaboration as well, right? A lot of, lot of people are coming together. Again, you mentioned COVID uh, as an example. Uh, if mm-hmm. they can share insights, share experiments, uh, and they're all doing it in a singular platform, I think it's really powerful. And just remember one thing I wanted to add is that we're talking about Open Science Grid, but Open Science Grid is the U.S. Uh, implementation, right? Yeah. There is like networks like this, research network with a common goal in enabling uh, computational workflows exist in all parts of the world, you know, yeah. and not only they exist, let's say, the, the European grid uh, in Europe, there are uh, processes in place and, you know, there is also, you know, work in place already where these two grids can be uh, accessed by both sides of the Atlantic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, and typically we will have like, you know, our European partners run jobs on the OSG and, and, and vice versa. Yeah. And so we're talking about an integration that spans the national borders right. and uh, spans oceans and, and continents. And, you know, if, if we can get researchers that basically ignore you know, the what is a flag and what is a border and focus on the fact that, <laughs> yeah. you know, science is science, regardless of whether it's written in English or Japanese, right? right? You can actually get a community under the same uh, banner, which is the advancement of science and the betterment of humankind. So to me, it gives you like this um, beyond the area of cyber infrastructure yeah. becomes an area of like, you know, human structure. It's like, you know, this uh, a planetary structure in terms of like people pursuing a worthwhile goal, uh, worthwhile goal yeah. as a species rather than as a U.S. or American or a Japanese or a Chinese. Yeah, and as they say, uh, from the space, you cannot see any national boundaries. So you can, uh, That's true. So all, all as far as I do, know. All we have to do to, to, get, uh, to make that happen, uh, Pascal, is to get 8.3 billion people up in space and they can look down and say, wow, you know, there are no countries from there. That's true. Although, you know, you can always turn on the TV and look at the NASA channel. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, but there will be those who think that this is actually filmed in some, uh, you know, studio someplace. But we digress. Right, right. Yeah. This has been, this has been great, uh, Pascal. Uh, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. I appreciate good it. Good luck with all the research that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Hey, bye-bye.